This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show. Today is Pearl Harbor Day, so we wanted to talk a bit about it. We're joined now by Dr. John McManus. He's a professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology and an an expert uh, on the issue. Uh, We're going to talk about the 75th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which is today, of course, led to the beginning of the Second World War. Dr. McManus, thank you for calling in. Hi, Buck. Good to be with you. All right, so it's been 75 years since Pearl Harbor. Uh, tell us a bit, if you would, about just sort of the, the lead-up to and, and, and what it was like that day. Yeah, the, you know, the lead-up to Pearl Harbor is about a two-year uh, process that uh, the, the U.S. and Japan, their relations get progressively worse. And, and the main issue is, um, you know, the, the kind of a balance of power in Asia. Um, Japan feels it needs resources to be on par with the U.S. and other Western powers. It doesn't have them, and it wants to get them at the expense of China and, you know, portions of the Pacific, and the United States doesn't like that. And so, uh, you know, just things deteriorate from there uh, until the Japanese decide they're going to have to launch not just the Pearl Harbor attack, but also a whole series of attacks in Asia and the Pacific, of which Pearl Harbor is just kind of the, the centerpiece. So by the time this happens on December 7, 1941, you know, it, it, there's been a lot of twists and turns. It's been a long time coming, and the Japanese feel uh, that this is the way they can achieve some level of sort of economic and resource parity with the United States and military parity if they can destroy the Pacific Fleet. So that's the purpose of the the attack on Pearl Harbor is to, to basically take out uh, American naval power in uh, in the Pacific. And what are some of the the interesting? Uh facts from from the day of the actual attack itself and what are things we all know that uh, japanese bombers uh went after the u.s fleet you know at pearl harbor but what are some of the things that you know you're somebody who's written a dozen books on the u.s role in world war ii Uh, what are some of the things that just people should remember or or should should keep in mind on the 75th anniversary of this massive sneak attack on the united states yeah, there's a number of things. I mean, I think the most important thing from our perspective, looking all these years later, there's 2,403 Americans who are killed in these attacks, and about 1,100 of them were aboard the USS Arizona, which is hit very quickly, capsizes, sinks, and it basically entombs these sailors who are still there today. Now, the Arizona, as you probably know, is a is a memorial even today that you can visit at Pearl Harbor. Um and, you know, 68 of those who were killed were actually civilians who were in the Honolulu area, and they were killed by American anti-aircraft fire because they didn't know what was going on. And when you're firing ordnance like that, what goes up must come down. And so you have just unlucky people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. You have uh, you have uh, Air Force uh, personnel who are at a place called Hickam Field, which is like right adjacent to Pearl Harbor. And <clears throat> they're they're sitting down to breakfast that morning. And you know, the Japanese just score a direct hit uh, on this barracks uh, where they're eating. Uh, bombs just go straight through and just kills dozens, if not hundreds, of people almost in the blink of an eye. Uh, so it's it's that kind of event 
that's just so profoundly traumatic. And as we get more distance from it, it's harder to, to wrap your mind around that, on that kind of quick loss of life. And of course, then there's, you know, the ships that are sunk, uh, most notably eight battleships, but, you know, five are raised later and repaired and used elsewhere in the war. So, you know, the ships could be could be replaced eventually. The planes could be replaced. There's about 150, 200 of them lost, mostly on the ground. The facilities could be repaired, but the lives that were lost, obviously, could never be replaced. And uh, that's what like really tends to stay with me all these years later after, you know, studying it so much. In your research into this, one of the questions, of course, that always comes up, uh, what people always want to know is how could it be that the U.S. was caught so unaware um, at Pearl Harbor? How was it that this sneak attack seemed to, to catch us in a way that there was really very limited ability to, to repel it at all? Um, how could how did we not see this coming? What were some of the factors it, that led to that? To sort of borrow a term we use nowadays, it's kind of the perfect storm. Um, you know, the Japanese are, are running a lot of different operations in the sense of preparing a number of different attacks, you know, from Hong Kong to uh, Malaya and Singapore to Indonesia, Burma, China, Philippines, so on and so forth. And they, you know, the U.S. intelligence has a pretty good sense that Japan is preparing to go to war. I mean, we know that uh, the, the day or two before the Pearl Harbor attack. But there isn't necessarily enough good information that says they're going to be able to sail this fleet within about 300 miles of Oahu and launch 370 aircraft and catch us flat-footed. Um, that's the part that's really sort of astonishing all these years later. And even so, um, the, the U.S. had a couple of opportunities to, to find out about this at the last minute and perhaps stave off, you know, you know, what was something of a disaster and perhaps saved some lives. What I mean by that, um, part of the attack, and we tend to overlook this, part of the attack was little mini submarines that the Japanese were going to infiltrate near the mouth of the harbor, and they were supposed to sit there and, and uh, attack any ships that were coming out of the harbor to escape the air raid, air raid you know. So um, one of these subs is detected by the USS Ward, a, a Navy destroyer, and is sunk about an hour or so before the, the plane struck Pearl Harbor. Uh, so, you know, they're trying to get the word to the, the higher-ups, uh, you know, back at Pearl Harbor in the command structure. And by the time they get the message, well, the planes are literally right overhead and dropping bombs. Uh, the planes are also detected on radar by sets in northern Oahu, and no one really knows or understands enough about what they're seeing to realize what's about to happen. Um, so, you know, I think the Japanese got away with what was a major mistake, a major screw-up with their submarines. Uh, it, but it just, you know, fortunately from an American perspective, it didn't cost them as it ought to have. What was the what was supposed to be the, the next step after Pearl from the Japanese uh, strategist's point of view at the, at the top of their military command? So they were going, they were going to disable the U.S. fleet, and, and then what were the sort of steps they were hoping for after that vis-a-vis -vis the United States? What the Japanese are really interested in at the beginning of the war is conquering what was called in those days the Dutch East Indies. Nowadays, it's Indonesia. And the reason is it was just completely resource-rich. You had oil, rubber, tin, bauxite, iron ore, all this kind of stuff that Japan really needed in order to be a first-class industrial and military power. And so a lot of their operations are geared toward taking over the Dutch East Indies, and to do that, they have to crush British imperial power, too, which is prevalent like in Malaya, Singapore, Burma, um, and Hong Kong, of course. So 
Japanese operations are geared toward that, and then they, they're going to have to also neutralize the U.S.-controlled Philippines. So what they're hoping is that, since the Allies are so unprepared for war, the first six to nine months or so after hostilities, that the Japanese will be able to conquer this resource-rich empire uh, and, you know, basically cripple the U.S. fleet and thus, you know, America's greatest weapon to strike back um, and negotiate some sort of end to the war on that basis that would be to their advantage. But the whole strategy is really undercut by this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor because the American people perceive it as so treacherous and so wrong and are so angry about it that they're determined to stand together and fight to the end. So right there, the Japanese strategy for a short war is undercut. And obviously, as we all know, a long war did not really favor them. So essentially, the, the Japanese were hoping that they could get what they needed in terms of the resources, seize these different territories, and then the U.S. wouldn't want to go. You know, then it's just okay. We have this. Let's not let's not go to all-out war. But of course, Pearl then led to a consensus among the American population, largely speaking, that we should go to war and that we weren't going to stop until they had unconditional surrender. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that was. That was what the determination of the American people was in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. And obviously there's a there's a kind of racial, cultural element to it as well. There, there's a lot of hatred on both sides in that regard. But, you know, what really creates that is what the American people see is just a completely treacherous kind of act at, at Pearl Harbor. So um, the Japanese have kind of undercut themselves from the start. And, and their, their war concept is based around something called Yamato Damashi, which is basically means Japanese fighting spirit, that that will prevail, that that's, the, that's, sort of, that's what tips the balance toward victory and war. Um, and they're right in the sense that human will is what decides wars. If you really like, study the history of wars, that's what the tendency is. But what the Japanese overlook is what would happen if you end up against an opponent who has just as much will to fight as you do, but also has more stuff, you know, more, right. a stronger economy, more industry. This is like the, the French are, are, French military colleges leading up to the, the First World War. What, they were teaching that it was essentially spirit and full frontal assault was the way that you win conflicts. Uh, they didn't take into account the whole machine gun emplacement aspect and, and, and heavy artillery of warfare. They just figured you mass in the center, you're brave, and you win. It was a very bad strategy going into the First World War, and clearly the Japanese in the Second World War um, sort of mirrored that sense of if we just have enough bravado and enough willingness, uh, we can outlast them and we can eventually defeat them. Absolutely. So they, um, I mean, they undercut it from the start. If you don't mind, I want to ask. I mean, you've seen the Pearl Harbor movie, right? Which is oh, problematic yeah. on a whole bunch of <laughs> from from just a, a film critic perspective, is problematic a whole bunch of ways. But the actual attack itself, the way it's portrayed in the movie, uh, taking out the the actors and the sort of dramatic, uh, you know, some some of the dramatic stuff that they obviously inserted to make the characters uh, central to what was going on. But the, the sort of the, the visuals and the overall way that attack came together, would you say that that's is, – was it pretty accurate? I think the best part of that film is that it does succeed in conveying the shock, the trauma, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the human carnage that happens right when the attack occurs. Uh, I think that part is pretty well done. As a literal-minded military historian, as most of us are, and that's why no one ever wants to see movies with us, um, it's distracting to see post-World War II-era uh, naval hardware <laughs> that's supposedly there in 1941. Uh, you know, So that gets a little, little dicey, but I, I do think that they succeeded in portraying 
the drama of the moment, the trauma of the moment, the difficulties inherent, uh, the shock of basically being in a peacetime mentality one moment and literally five minutes later you're in the middle of a war. Um, and your whole world, everything changes. And I, I did think that part was pretty well done. And the uh, some of the, the the sequences that they show, I mean, there were there were people who must have seen before the actual raid. I mean, they must have seen the the planes coming. And I, I think I read earlier in the week uh, that some of the survivors of, of Pearl talked about being so the Japanese pilots uh, flying so low at some points where they could actually some of the pilots waved to them. Are there any sort of personal oh, yeah. anecdotes uh, that that you came across in your research and writing the books you've done in the Second World War that you just want to share? Most definitely, and it, yeah, I've won, some of the really fascinating ones I, I've just been working on recently, actually, because I'm doing a two-volume history of the, the Army in the Pacific Asia Theater, and, of course, Pearl Harbor is where that story begins. And uh, I found a number of accounts from people who were based at uh, Schofield Barracks, which was uh, the main Army uh, base in Oahu, and it's about it's about a dozen to a dozen and a half miles north of, of Pearl Harbor, and it's one of the targets that the Japanese hit. And so... You have these guys who are basically lined up for breakfast, and all of a sudden now they're in the middle of an air raid. And uh, the Japanese are flying around with so little opposition that these guys are wearing headscarves and looking at individual soldiers on the ground and waving to them uh, and you know, smiling at them you know, almost in a friendly way. It's almost surreal. And the Americans, some of the the, the, uh, the stories that, that I've uncovered, the, the Americans aren't really sure how to respond, whether to wave back or shoot at the guy or, or just what you actually do in that circumstance. Why weren't they? I mean, the one thing that you do see, and in, in, uh, not to, I mean, to return to a movie that I, I would say is, is a overall a bad movie, uh, but one part of it that I feel like watching this, everyone just wonders, how come there wasn't more of an ability, even caught unaware, to, to fight back? I mean, what, what would have been necessary, you know, the... the was it just they, they hit the planes, they hit U.S. planes on the ground before they could get up in the air? They, they didn't have, you know, why were, I mean, the ships were at harbor, so obviously they're sitting ducks, but they have lots of uh, heavy weaponry on those gun decks. I mean, what, what would have been necessary or, or why was it impossible for them to sort of mount more of a counterattack? What were the factors at play? You know, a big part of it is that the military forces all around, not just in Pearl Harbor, but everywhere, are in a peacetime mode, which basically one symptom of that maybe that explains the larger answer to the question is um, the ammo lockers are locked and of course in peacetime every piece of ordinance has to be uh, accounted for you know in an administrative way so you know you're having a hard time aboard ships or or in an anti-aircraft battery or wherever you're having a hard time actually getting to your ammo and you actually have supply sergeants who are kind of still in peacetime mode saying well wait a minute no i need orders from above before i can allow this storage locker to be open and people are, are sort of like are you kidding me and so you know sometimes they're they're sort of brushing past these guys sledgehammering to try and get into their ammo lockers and obviously that takes time and the ammo itself sometimes is not prepared properly uh, some of it's antiquated and so that's a preparation and supply issue too um, and it's just the surprise and shock too that so many people have like what is going on and and uh, you know to, to transition sometimes makes it takes 20 or 30 minutes and by then the japanese have been able to drop whatever bombs they want so they it's not as if they're flying around with impunity but it's not quite the opposition you would hope but i will say this um if you were one of those japanese aviators you definitely wanted to be in the first wave rather than the second wave by the time the second wave comes in you know about an hour an hour and a half after the original attack you know the harbor defenses are pretty well alerted at that point and there's a lot of ordnance going up after them 
uh, and that's when they take most of their losses. They lost 29 planes, which were not inconsiderable losses for them. Dr. John McManus is an award-winning professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology. He's a military historian and an author of a dozen books on the U.S. role in World War II. More on Dr. McManus at johnmcmanus.com. Doc, appreciate you joining today. Thank you very much for calling in. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. The Buck Sexton Show. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800 800- 600-1645. 800-600-1645. 